Okay, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you as you come in. If you'll be finding your way to your seat, we have Blake and Lydia greeting in the back, helping you find seats. So if you need to find, find help getting an open seat, these guys can help you locate something. But we're glad you're here this morning. just want to remind you as it's getting kind of tight in the sanctuary, as you come in, Gateway family, if you don't mind sitting more towards the front, that'll help our guests in the back who come in a little bit later find a place to sit. We'd appreciate it if you consider moving forward a little bit in future weeks and also sit towards the inside of the aisles um, so it's, it, it helps our greeters see where available seats are. So I hope you can help us welcome our friends who are new to Gateway. Well, we know as we come in this morning, people come in with lots of burdens and distractions and hardships because life is not easy at times. So as we prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord and to hear God's word taught this morning, I want to read to us from First Peter. I know this is the, the book we're preaching through and studying through, but as I was thinking on it this morning, even praying this morning for our time together, just keep going back to the hope that we have in Christ. Regardless of what's happened in your life this week, the hope we have in Christ. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. They do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege you've given to us this morning of gathering together as your people to sing your praises, to pray together, and to study your word together. I pray we would not take lightly this morning this privilege that we have as the people of God gathered together. Lord, I know that many in this room come in with different burdens this week, those relationships or finances or sickness or trials or different things they've walked through. Lord, whatever it is that our minds are focused on this morning and wrestling with, I pray this morning by your grace and by your Holy Spirit working as you would focus our minds on you. That God, they would not look to our circumstances, but God, we would look to eternity. We would think about that inheritance we have that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. <clears throat> Lord, I pray as well this morning that our hope today would be in knowing that we belong to you, that you've caused us to be born again, not of anything we have done, Lord, but all because of you. And so this morning for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters, I pray today that the gospel will be sweet to us, that the message of hope we have in Christ will be sweet to us and be our hope and be our anchor. And so, Lord, would you clear our minds of all those things that distract us this week and focus us on you and your glory and your grace. And I pray when we leave this place, Lord, we would leave more in love with you than when we came in. We leave more in awe of you than when we came in. And we'd leave with our hearts renewed and refreshed because we've been in the presence of our creator and our redeemer. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this morning, as we sing about the redemption we have in Christ and the hope we have in Christ. Sing, I was lost. I was lost in sin, held captive by my fear, till your mercy.
that again. I was lost. I was lost in sin, held captive by my fear, till your mercy showed your hand was reaching. Oh
You may be seated. And as you're sitting there in a spirit of prayer, I want you to hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 4. It's what we've just been singing about, friends. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Before I pray on our behalf, would you take a minute where you're seated to pray just where you are. Thank God for his love for you and take a minute to think on that and thank him for it. Father, what glorious truths you've given us, the breath in our lungs to sing about this morning, to sing of your graciousness, to sing of your greatness, to sing of your love for us. And Lord, we are just humbled by that. We are overwhelmed by that. And I pray that our hearts would be refreshed thinking about your love that has pursued us. Yet, Lord, as we read in 1 John, the very next verse pushes us to now say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us grace to do that. We saw that last week in First Peter and the calling you've given us to love others. Lord, we all struggle with it in different ways. But I pray you would increase our capacity to love others because we are rooted and grounded in knowing your love. God, I pray for myself and these friends that Lord, we would understand we are loved by you, period that we don't have to do anything to earn your love, to earn your favor. You have chosen us in Christ. You have made us, as 1 Peter says, elect exiles, and it has nothing to do with us. Lord, anchor us in that truth, ground us in that truth, and from that place, I pray we can love others, knowing we are secure being held and loved by God. 
Lord, we thank you for so many in this church who serve in different ways to love others in this community. Lord, we think of what Seth and Megan do with the Hope's Ministry and those Tuesday morning Bible studies and meeting the practical needs of the students. And I pray you would encourage them and strengthen them as they love those in need in the Capitol Heights area. And we think of what Jeff and Jennifer do and the others involved with Fisher's Farm and loving these guys who've had struggles in their past to find freedom in the gospel. I pray you'd refresh them and encourage them. Lord, we thank you for the brothers who have recently graduated from Fisher's Farm and how the gospel has transformed them. We pray you would encourage them on the new path that you have them on. And Lord, we pray that you will bring the right guys to the program who need the hope of the gospel to transform them and change them. We thank you for Lenny and Debbie and all they're doing to love the needy in Montgomery. And Lord, we know that's a nonstop ministry and there's never a break. And so I pray you would encourage them and give them rest as they seek to love others. And Lord, you've given all of us opportunities in our neighborhood, in our schools, in our workplaces to share the love of Christ. And so Lord, I pray this morning as we study more of your word that we would understand how we are loved by you and that would drive us to love others we meet wherever we go this week. And Lord, we can't manufacture that. Only you can. So I pray you do that in our hearts. Lord, even as we seek to love people here in our city, we don't want to forget the nations. Because, Lord, you love the nations. And you've told us that one day around your throne, there will be people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language who are worshiping you. And so, Lord, help us as a church grow in loving the nations well. Lord, we thank you for what's going on in Kenya with Meskel's Children's Center of Hope and the work done through the school and the orphanage there. Thank you for Emily and her work here in Montgomery to mobilize for that. We pray you would grow that ministry and grow their reach. And I pray that the people in Kenya will be touched and reached with the gospel through Meskels. Lord, help us remember to pray for them and show us how to come alongside this ministry and many others. Lord, to the gospel goes forth as we seek to love the world that you made. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word to transform us, to change us, to help us love as you as love, loved us. And so we pray for Greg this morning. I just thank you for my brother and his friendship and, Lord, the work he does here as an elder in this church and the way he teaches your word so faithfully, the way he counsels people. Lord, just thank you for the way the gospel has gripped him. And I pray this morning as he continues our study of 1 Peter, Lord, I pray you give us teachable hearts as well, that the gospel would just grip our hearts this morning as we continue the study of your word. And, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give back to you. Lord, we thank you that everything belongs to you. And Lord, I pray we would entrust to you the resources you've called us to give back to you. So thank you for what's already been given this morning. Thank you for what's been given online this week. We pray we'll be wise stewards of the resources you've given us so that we can love one another well, love this city well, and love the nations well. And we'll give you the praise for all that you are doing and all that you will do. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, first to fourth grade, you are dismissed with Mr. Zach to kids of worship. So first to fourth grade, go have fun with Mr. Zach. And this is, if you're new to Gateway, this is Greg Till. He's one of our elders. He's going to be sharing God's word with us this morning. Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's really good to, uh, to see you. I know most of you, but as Grady said, I'm Greg Teal, one of the elders here at Gateway. And uh, it's really a privilege uh, to be up here to share with you this morning as we continue our study in First Peter. Um, 
And one of the, over the last few weeks and months, we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, where our salvation has been on royal display. And you know the songs that we just sang today, that were all gospel-centered songs, all talked about what we're going to talk about today. And what we've learned so far in 1 Peter, as Grady's faithfully been teaching us, is number one, that we are God's choice, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, as he regenerates our heart and he sets us apart to obey Christ and to be cleansed and forgiven by his death on the cross. We learn that God caused us to be born again to a living hope, which is eternal, to obtain an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that will never fade away. We also learned that this is all for his praise and his glory and to honor Jesus Christ. And we learned that we're to fervently love one another because we've been given new life. And the very life of God in our own love flows from this new life. And this new life is from a seed, a seed unlike all other seeds, which grow and flower and then die. This seed is imperishable. This seed is living and enduring and never dies. This seed is the word of God. And Peter ends chapter 1, pointing you and I to the most important truth in all of Scripture. And it will confront us, and it eternally affects all of humanity, from Adam to the end of the age. So what I, would, I would ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our passage for today, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version beginning in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. You may be seated. And so what was the word that he's referring to that was preached to you? What is the most important, all-encompassing and glorious truth in all of God's word. It is the gospel. So the big question for today, there's just one question and it's very simple. What is the gospel? Now some of you may be thinking, uh, Greg, don't we already know the gospel? We're saved by the gospel, remember? Um, is there something new you're going to talk about today? Is there some new angle that you're going to take? And so... Let me turn it around and ask you a question. What answer would you give if someone asked you, particularly a non-Christian, ask you, what is this gospel I hear about? I think they call it good news. And what is this news and what's so good about it? Well, there's a variety of answers that when that question is asked that you hear today. So some say that the gospel is that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And if you admit that to God, He'll forgive you or your sins, and you can know him because of Jesus' death on the cross. Or you might hear, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will come into your heart and change you and give you purpose and meaning in your life. Or you might hear, the good news is that, is, is that in this crazy world, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or you might hear something like this, Jesus came to earth to make all things right, beginning with people's hearts, 
and then beginning a new kingdom that would someday come to fullness when he returns. Now, I'm sure all of you here heard kernels of truth in all of those, um, but are these the gospel? So C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, says this, the gospel isn't one class among many you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. And I hope you begin to get the picture that the gospel is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. And secondly, he goes on to say, never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond. Its depths man will never exhaust. And I will tell you that as I have tackled this subject, I'm a little intimidated to try to share it with you in 45 minutes. And I did say 45 minutes because I speak slower than Grady. (laughs) And because this is something that will take you your whole life to grasp in many ways. And I don't think you want to be here your whole life today. So today, as we ask the big question, what is the gospel? Here's what I hope the outcome will be. So for some of you, it'd be to grow personally in your understanding of the gospel. For others to be more competent to share the gospel without rounding off the edges of the gospel to make it more appealing or less offensive to those around you. I hope you will see and experience the gospel as the centerpiece of not only your life, but also the life of the church. For some, it may be to understand the gospel for the first time or to at least have some questions raised in your mind and your heart about the gospel. But for all of us, for all of us to realize that the gospel is not only the means of being made righteous before God, but also the means of growing up in God to be like Christ. It is the all-consuming framework of our lives. So where do we begin to answer the question, what is the gospel? In the Bible, right? So that's what we'll do. And there are multiple places in scriptures that we can turn to to answer that question. However, we're going to turn to what is arguably one of the most detailed narratives of the gospel in the scripture and use Romans chapter one, chapters 1 through 4 as a framework or a construct, if you will, actually to explore what are four big questions that we'll raise to answer the one question, what is the gospel? And Paul gives us the purpose and thesis of his letter to the church in Rome when he begins in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, and he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The righteous one will live by faith. So right up front, the overarching theme of Paul's letter to the believers in Rome is this. The righteousness that comes from God. The glorious truth that God justifies or declares innocent, condemned sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he goes on to expound on the gospel in a very systematic way orderly way in Romans 1 through 4 and beyond, particularly in 5 through 8 as well. And at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel 
here in Romans are answers to four basic questions. And believe me, these are basic life questions that not only you as believers have asked yourself and have answered, but that every human being asks themselves and spends their whole life trying to answer. So here's the four. Number one, who made us and to whom are we accountable? Number two, what is our problem? In other words, are we in trouble and why? Number three, what is God's solution to that problem? And number four, how can I be included in this salvation? And on the slides, he already had the answers. He wasn't supposed to have the answers yet. So <laughs> pretend you didn't see those. So in answering these questions, the gospel is clearly seen in all of its glory. And even in this time together focusing on the gospel, I go back to C.J. Mahaney's quote. It has more facets than a diamond, and depths man will never exhaust. And so there are many aspects of the gospel that I cannot sufficiently cover today. So however, the gospel should not be so simplified that you miss the depth and the richness at the heart of the gospel nor should it be so complex that you're paralyzed by it. The gospel should be accessible to you and transferable to others. And it should be something in that you are growing in your whole life. So let's begin with our Romans 1 through 4 construct, the questions it presents, and the answers Scripture give to our simple question today, what is the gospel? Well, unlike what we normally think or communicate, the gospel doesn't begin with you or me. It begins with God as we ask the first question. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, Paul begins uh, this section on the gospel where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So beginning here in this Romans 1-4 through construct, we see a few things. Number one, that humanity is accountable to God, that we're not autonomous individuals, that we're created and owned by God. It's our purpose and obligation to give him praise, honor, and glory as our creator. But I want to look at some other aspects of God as our creator since it begins with him. And most of this you'll be familiar with, but this is the story. So God created the universe and all matter in it. See that in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made his existence unmistakable in his creation. See in Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And we just saw this in Romans 1.20 as well. We also see that God made us, you and I. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The pinnacle of creation. God not only created us, he gave us a mission and a purpose. In Genesis 1.28, we see God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Isaiah, we're not going to turn here for, for time, but in Isaiah 43, verses 7 and 21, and also Revelation 4, 11, we can see that God made us for his glory, for his praise, and for his pleasure. And finally, we also see that as our creator, God has creator rights over us to tell us how to live. We see in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the, knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall surely, if you eat from it, you will surely die. Well, Greg Gilbert in his book, uh, What is the Gospel? And I will, I will recommend this book to you. This has informed my thinking probably more than any other book on just the completeness of the gospel. I will quote him several times today. He says, none of us is autonomous, and understanding that fact is key to understanding the gospel. Despite our constant talk of rights and liberty, we're not really as free as we'd like to think. We are created, we are made, and therefore we are owned. And you know, these are not truths, particularly in this country, that we are used to hearing. We're such an independent, uh, we were born of rebellion and independence. So now God is not only our creator, but he's also righteous and he's holy and he's perfect in all his attributes and way. So let's look at God, the righteous and justice one. So listen to this amazing passage in Exodus 34, six and seven, where God gives his own description of himself. He's normally described by others, but here he describes himself to Moses as he shows himself to Moses. So then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. And let me just stop there to say that this is God saying his name, Yahweh, personal, Moses, I am Yahweh. He goes on to say, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I love that first part of the passage. But it continues. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren on the third and fourth generations. So God is gracious compassionate, patient, forgiving, yet he will punish those who are guilty of sin. So is this contradictory? Is there a dilemma that we're in here? What this does do is it shatters the view of God that he sweeps sin under the rug. Scripture all over declares that God is a God of perfect justice and a God of perfect righteousness. So Psalm 33, 5, 
says this, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. You see in Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And I love the way the NIV says it, Your eyes are too pure to look on. You cannot tolerate wrong. Or your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Now, many might say when we talk about God, a God of judgment, a God that's judging me? No. Until they see someone like we saw in Hitler, or they see genocide in the world like we saw in Serbia, like we see in Africa. Until they see some of the atrocities that we've seen, terrorism, mass shootings, and they realize there's something there that's very evil and deserves judging. But nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil, do they? We just want a God who declines to deal with our evil. So we Christians, and I'm saying we as in the general population of Christians, we have done a pretty good job of making sure that those we share with understand that our God is a God of love and compassion and grace. And so he is. But if we're going to understand how glorious and life-giving that the gospel really is, we have to understand, as we see in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, he is also holy and righteous and that he never overlooks sin, including our own. He is God, the righteous creator. Now this brings us to the bad news. And the next question, what is our problem? In other words, are we in trouble and why? So enter man the sinner. So from our Romans 1 through 4 framework, we look at Romans 1, through 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them up to vile impurity and the lusts of their heart so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for most of the next three chapters in Romans, Paul chronicles the sinfulness of all humanity. And he begins with the pagans or the irreligious or the Gentiles. He says, guilty of sin. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to the religious, the Jews, all guilty. And of course, we see the pinnacle in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that, we see that no one escapes. We see in Romans 3, 19, he says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable. To God. So, so far, not much good news here. That I've rebelled against a holy, judging God and have been found guilty is not good news. But it makes sense. If someone says, you need saving, it only makes sense if I need saving, right? And you must believe 
that you really need saving. So we've rebelled against God, sin. That's the problem. So let's unpack man the sinner. Greg Gilbert says this, but according to the Bible, sin is a lot more than the violation of some inner, impersonal, arbitrary, heavenly traffic regulation. It's the breaking of a relationship, and even more, it's a rejection of God himself, a repudiation of God's rule, God's care, God's authority, and God's right to command those to whom he gave life. In short, it is the rebellion of the creature against the creator. Now, sin is often characterized as, as well as breaking God's law, rebelling against God. The word for sin most often used in the Bible literally means missing that mark, missing the mark of God's perfection. Well, we humans didn't just miss the mark. We went totally in the opposite direction. So let's go back to Genesis. If we saw from earlier passages in Genesis, God created us in his image to live in a vibrant, unbroken relationship with him under his rule with perfect joy as we obeyed him. He gave us a mission and a purpose, a job to do, ruling the world with him under his authority. So enter sin. Genesis 3.17, then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. So Adam and Eve were rejecting God's authority over them. They were declaring their independence from God. And they wanted to be as the serpent had promised, like God. The consequences of their sin were epic to include all creation being cursed, Physical death and spiritual death entered into creation and a life of toil and pain. And we see this in Romans 8 when Paul paints a picture of all creation groaning under the curse of the sin. In Romans 8, 19 through 23, we read, For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we are also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemptions of our body. So back to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just Adam and Eve guilty, but as it says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. But how many people do you know that think of themselves and most of humanity as basically good and self-sufficient? And the idea that we're sinful and rebellion at the core rebellious at the core is just rubbish to them. Maybe it's rubbish to you. Well, if the bad news of the gospel isn't that bad after all, then the good news won't be understood. And quite frankly, not even needed. Everybody needs to improve a renovation of sorts. And yes, there are those evil types who don't deserve to live. And if God can take care of them, 
I'm all for that. That's the kind of God I want. Well, hold on. We don't just sin. We're sinners by our very nature. Ephesians 2, 3 says this. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And this is the Bible's clearest picture of our true human nature as fallen sinners. Our very core is a nature of sin. Now, sometimes the gospel is presented as, God, you give per- can you give purpose or meaning to my life and fill up my emptiness if I let you in my life? And that's what, how sometimes the gospel is portrayed, but that misses the deep roots of the real problem, which is our sin. And our sin runs deep. It is our nature from the inside out, and we are all spiritually dead. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus speaking, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. The things we say, things we feel, things we think, these rise from within us, from our heart. And Ephesians 2, 1 says it very clearly, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So in some respects, it's not enough just to think about Jesus coming to save us from our sins, if by that we mean our individual sins or isolated mistakes that we make. It's only when we realize that the very nature, our very nature is sinful and that we are spiritually dead in our sins that we see how good the news is that there is a way to be saved. And as we read before in Romans 3.19 and 3.23, we have no defense. And the verdict is death. And I mean physical death and spiritual death. And finally, before we leave man the sinner, God judges our sin. As we saw back in Exodus 34, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And he's shown us what that judgment is. See, in Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We see in Mark 8.43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. This is sobering truth. Hell, as a place of God's judgment, is a clear biblical reality. And I didn't make this up. You didn't make this up. This is God's story. And we're faithfully telling his story. So what is God's solution to the problem? How has God acted to save us from it? So I want to pause here just for a second. And say that so often when we think of the gospel, we start right here. We jump right into this part of the story, to the good news that we're about to cover. But this news is only good when you understand how bad the news really is. So I just want to challenge you with that today.
And we've looked at God's glorious righteousness and his justice. We've looked at the sinfulness of our sin. And that is the setting on which we're going to place this diamond of the good news. Because otherwise, it really doesn't make sense. So now, get ready. We're about to enter into the Holy of Holies. Meet Jesus Christ, the Savior and heart of good news. So in our Romans 1 through 4 construct, Paul says the answer to man's rebellion, man's sin against a holy God, is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the heart and core of the gospel. So after declaring in Romans 1 through 3, the pagans are, or immoral are guilty, the religious are guilty, we're all guilty, he writes two big words that begins our journey home. In Romans 3.21, he says, but now. How can the unrighteous be made righteous? The guilty be made innocent? Be justified instead of condemned? Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here it is. Being justified. That means declared righteous and innocent. As a gift by his grace. That's God's work, not yours or mine. Through, now here's the means. The redemption. We've been bought back. Our debt has been paid, which is in Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection. That is good news. Now back to Genesis. Let's look at the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Greg Gilbert says this, even in the Garden of Eden, God had given Adam and Eve a word of hope. Some good news in the midst of despair. It wasn't much, just a hint really. A phrase tacked at the end of God's sentence against the serpent. When he said, he, Christ, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head. This is a fatal blow. And you, Satan, shall bruise him, Christ, on the heel cause him to suffer. God wanted Adam and Eve, rebels though they were, to know the story was not over. Here was some gospel, some good news in the midst of this cataclysm. And the rest of the Bible tells the story of how this tiny seed of good news germinated, sprouted, and grew. So for thousands of years, God prepared the world through law and prophecy for his stunning coup de grace against the serpent in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it was all over, the guilt that Adam and Eve had inflicted on his entire race would be defeated. The death God pronounced over his creation would die, and hell would be brought to its knees. The Bible is the story of God's counteroffensive against sin. It's the ground or the grand narrative of how God made it right and how he is making it right and how he will one day make it right, finally and forever. So we had the but now in Romans 3.21, but one of probably many of our favorite verses in all the scripture is but God in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for him so that we would walk in them. And I hope that seeing that passage in light of the desperate news of our sinfulness springs up something in your heart today. We also see that, that Paul said in Galatians 3, 13 through 14, just some other descriptions of the gospel in the New Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Peter describes this this way in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter goes on to say in Chapter 2, verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And Isaiah, in one of the most profound Old Testament passages on the work of Christ, says this in chapter, or in verse, or chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of, for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. But this large question remains. How can a God have mercy on sinners without denying justice? Because he is just. So what does it mean that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin? And yet he by no means clears the guilty. In Exodus 34, 7 that we read, How can a righteous and holy God justify the ungodly? Well, the answer to all these questions is found at the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' substitutionary death for his people. A righteous and holy God can justify the ungodly. You and I, because in Jesus' death, mercy and justice were perfectly reconciled. The curse was rightly executed, and we were mercifully saved. This is the concept of substitutionary atonement. The heart of the gospel, many things Christ did accomplish in his death on the cross, but foundationally, it is what theologians would call penal substitution where Christ, the innocent one, took our sins and died a criminal's death so that you and I, the real criminals, could go free. It's also called the great exchange, where my sin was laid on Jesus. His righteousness was credited to me, and it was his substitutionary death that did this. And we see this so clearly if you memorize scripture, this is one you need to memorize. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then the resurrection. Everything Jesus did, everything that Jesus claimed was vindicated forever. Romans 4.25 says it this way. He who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. So the wrath of God against our sin was satisfied. This is good news. But there's one question that still remains. <clears throat> How can I be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me and not just for someone else or in general? Well, the gospel demands a response, and the response we see in Scripture is repentance and faith. So finally, from our Romans 1 through 4 construct, Paul includes how each person might be saved, how this good news is good news to them, to you and to I. And he writes about this at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. In Romans 3.22, we see this, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So it's by faith in Jesus Christ that his righteousness is applied to our lives, to our account. So by completely trusting Christ, no other to save you. That faith is counted as righteousness. And he makes this clear in chapter 4 and verse 5 when he says this, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So where do we see this response of repent and believe in Scripture. Let's look a few places. In Mark 1.15, Jesus speaking and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 20.21, Paul says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we see in Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light to the, from the dominion of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And this was Jesus' commission to Paul for the mission of his life. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is turning from sin, it's hating your sin, and it's resolving by God's strength and grace to forsake your sin. And there is a sorrow that is associated with repentance. You know, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth about their repentance. And he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, another picture of repentance. For they themselves report about us, as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and a true God. 
And in this repentance, for repentance to be genuineness, there's a fruitfulness that comes from this repentance. And that fruitfulness is a changed life. Acts 26, 19 through 20, <clears throat> when Paul talking before King Agrippa, he says, For this reason, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but continually proclaimed to those in Damascus first and in Jerusalem, and then all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they are to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. And in Matthew 3, 8, we see this clearly. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And this was John the Baptist as he was looking at the Pharisees and seeing their lives. And he said, if you want me to believe you've repented, produce fruit that would be consistent with you having turned towards God. So repentance and faith. <clears throat> this is what marks out those who are Christ's people. In other words, a Christian is one who turns away from his sin, repentance, and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing else, for his salvation, to save him from his sin and coming judgment. That is repentance and faith. Repent and believe. So what leads us to repentance? What drives us to, to repent before the Lord? Well, Romans 2.4 tells us it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see. He opens our ears to hear, maybe for the first time, the truth of the gospel. And he opens our hearts to believe and receive the truth of the gospel. You know, when we think about salvation, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He will come in that we, we see, the, see the word of God. We're convicted of our sin before the Lord and we confess our sin that we have offended holy God. We confess our sin and turn away from our sin and repentance. We acknowledge our need for a Savior and we turn to God by faith alone in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And I love what Titus 3.5 talks about how we are washed. We are cleansed from our sin. We're regenerated, given a new life, new heart by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we won't have that verse up, but this describes how the Holy Spirit then baptizes you and I into Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says we are in Christ. And it also comes and lives within us. The Holy Spirit fills us with his presence. So here it is. The truth and the mystery is this, that we are totally dependent on the Lord for our repentance and belief. At the same time, we're commanded to repent and believe, and we're held responsible for it if we don't. And that brings us back to where we began in Romans. The glorious truth that God justifies, declares innocent, guilty, condemned sinners like you and like me, by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. <clears throat> so in light of this glorious gospel, I want to close with two questions and the application that will come from this. If you have repented and by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or a born-again follower of Christ, I want to ask you this. Are you growing in the gospel? 
But if you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, as we've talked about today, my question for you is what are you waiting for? So let's talk about some application. So to continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel, number one, is I want to encourage you to preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Let me say that again. Preach the gospel to yourselves daily. So there's a book that has just been a go-to for me. It's called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. Where that's the thesis of his book, is that we're to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, and it's a book on how to do that, a way to do that, with encouragement to do that, how we can let the gospel live within us daily. And I want to encourage you to pick this book up, even as a starter. There's a, a prayer in the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a book of Puritan prayers. I know many of you have that. Um, it says this, one of the prayers, Holy Trinity, continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice, evidences thy love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the ground of my peace and of thy favor and acceptance so that I may live always near the cross. You and I must keep the cross at the center of the gospel. You know, as I've counseled others in marriage and I, and I practice in our own marriage, Cecilia and I have made a place, we have a place where we meet in these moments of brokenness, of our own sin, sometimes when we carry the burdens of others, that place is at the foot of the cross where the ground is level. We meet on equal terms as fellow sinners with no other defense than his righteousness and the forgiveness that he won on the bloody cross. It's a place where God's grace, mercy, and love flow freely and endlessly, and we find help and healing. It's the place where miracles in our hearts and in relationships take place. It's a place where hope is born and fulfilled. And I want to encourage you to make the path to the foot of the cross a well-worn path in your life. But are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of God? As we began today, we began the gospel by looking at who is God. Remember, holy, righteous, creator, God. That is the beginning of the gospel. So I would just say this, in my many years as a Christian, my view of God as I've walked with the Lord has changed a lot over the years. And you know what? That's not unusual. You think when I was a baby Christian and I came to the Lord, born into the family of God, I had a certain view of who God was and it was very simplistic. And that's okay. But just like we grow up humanly, we grow up spiritually. And my understanding of who God is now is much different than it was then. And this should be the common experience for you too. I know when Grady came to this church, the first thing he did on Wednesday nights, he took us through a complete series for like six months on the attributes of God. And I know his intention in doing that because he knows, he knows that our view of God shapes everything, shapes our view of the gospel. And I'm so grateful for that, Grady. Thank you. By the way, Grady secondly went through the book of John. He went from who God is to the gospel. And I love that model. So Spurgeon, when speaking of the Christian, says this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. 
I love that. So begin the journey of delving deeply into the attributes of God, the character of God. And let me ask you, do you know him? So I'm going to read this. He is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. He's everywhere, unchanging, infinite, holy, patient, wrathful, faithful, loving, righteous, gracious, transcendent, just, good, jealous, merciful, sovereign. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's eternal with no beginning or end. He is incomprehensible. Do you know him? And as we grow in this area, I will tell you it produces in us a joy, an awe, a reverence, a praise, and a worship of our infinitely perfect and beautiful God. So how do we pursue God in this, in the knowledge of God? Well, I have another resource for you. There's a couple of resources. One is The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink, and there are other books written on the attributes of God where you delve deeply into so many of those characteristics of who God is. Another that, uh, in fact, this is Tim Brown's dad that uh, recently told me about this book. It's called The Identity and Attributes of God by Terry Johnson. Another good resource. So another practical example of how to get to know God and all his attributes is practice in the Psalms daily. And I, I want to hold this up. This is Tim Keller and his wife Kathy's devotional it's called the Songs of Jesus, and it's one year through the Psalms where the gospel comes out in every page, where the attributes of God comes out in every page. And the Psalms are rich in the attributes of God, and I want to encourage you. So as your understanding and knowledge of God's character, His great love and amazing grace, shown most clearly at the cross, grows, so does your understanding and awareness of the sin in your life. So you may have heard the expression, and I heard this first from Tim Keller, that all of life is repentance. But do you know its origins? Actually, the great reformer Martin Luther in his 95 Thesis, the number one on his 95 Thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so... I want to encourage you to have a daily time of confession and reflection and repentance, reorienting your life back to Christ, moment by moment, or as my wife Cecilia says, nanosecond by nanosecond. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says this, and many of you are familiar, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, that the gospel would move us to daily confess our sin before God and repent. I don't know about you, but I've been a believer for 42 years now. And I feel like I sin more now than I did when I became a Christian. That my sin has grown. And honestly, it hasn't grown necessarily because I sin more, but because I see God in his holiness and I see the sinfulness of my sin. And I want to encourage you to begin that journey because sin is deadly. So to bring it all together, we began today with four questions to answer the one. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? God, the righteous creator. What is our problem? Man, the sinner. What is God's solution to that problem? Christ, the Savior. 
And how can I be included in that salvation? To repent and believe. So God's call to all of us today. Here's the call of the gospel. Repent and believe. So if it's for the first time that you're doing this, this leads to salvation, to being born again in Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians 7.10. But for those who know Christ, who are born of His Spirit, we're called to live and grow in the gospel daily, gazing at God in all His glorious perfection and holiness, confessing our sin and repenting moment by moment and experiencing afresh and anew God's glorious grace and His glorious love so clearly demonstrated in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and His death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You, Lord, for this journey that we've just taken. Lord, through some of the depths of the gospel, Lord, we, Lord, You're just so rich. Lord, there's no way we could cover the glory of the gospel, but I pray today, Lord, that your gospel's been clearly presented, Lord. Lord, your work upon the cross. Lord, your great, great love for us. Lord, you taking our place on the cross to give us life, everlasting life with you. Lord, we're just so grateful. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. Lord, I think of your invitation where you say, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, humble of heart. You will find rest for your soul. Lord, I think of the words of St. Augustine. He says, the Lord has made us for himself. Heart hearts are restless till it finds its rest in thee. Lord, would you give rest to our souls today across this room? We pray in Jesus' name.
we have just proclaimed that we believe we can run to you every day in all situations. So we ask now for the grace to do that. Lord, you know how quickly our hearts run to everything else than you. And I pray that this week you'd remind us that invitation, that call to run to you, to run to your word, to run to pray, to run to just sit in your presence and enjoy your presence. Lord, may we be a people this week who are quick to run to you, knowing that you are strong, you are kind, you are faithful, you are unchanging. And Lord, I pray the truths of the glorious gospel we've been reminded of this morning would take root in our hearts. Or if there's anyone here who's never believed, they may have done external things, they may have joined churches, but Lord, they've never embraced the gospel that has transformed them. Would you let today be the day of their salvation? Lord, for the many of Gateway who, this is familiar news to us, Lord, would you awaken our hearts to the wonder of what we have in Christ, and may we run to you because we know you, whatever comes our way this week. And we ask it not only for our joy, but for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family, and have a great Sunday afternoon.